0: This episode of Nordic Nation is brought to you by the Masters World Cup 2018 to be held in Worth Park in downtown Minneapolis. This is Jason Albert and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. In this episode, we get into the biathlon details with the president and CEO of U.S. Biathlon, Max Cobb. Coming off of Banner World Championships, where Lowell Bailey won gold and Susan Dunkley silver, Cobb talks about operating U.S. Biathlon like a nimble startup and how to move forward with the anti-doping movement in sport, where Cobb has been an outspoken advocate for reforms. I spoke to Cobb back on September 8th who are you, and what do you have to do with U.S. Biathlon?
1: (laughs) So I am uh, the president and CEO of U.S. Biathlon, and I started with the organization in September 1989. Uh, So I've been, what's that, 28 years, I guess, with the organization now. And, um, you know, my first um, work was, uh organizing the domestic race series and um but pretty quickly after that uh started working with the national team and um worked with the national team through 1999 and then um really started uh focusing more on the uh, preparation for the salt lake city games and um, so I had a, a more administrative role uh, I s- Remained as program director through 2002, and was the chief of competition for the um, games out in Salt Lake, and um, did a stint as uh, marketing director for US Biathlon halftime, and working halftime for the New England Nordic Ski Association um, through 2006, and then in March of 2006, I was I became the uh, executive director for us biathlon and later the title was changed to president and ceo
0: you became president ceo when that title change occurred in 2010 so that's right yeah is usba or you know us biathlon association a for-profit or a non-profit entity
1: so us biathlon is a non-profit entity we are the national governing body for the sport of biathlon and um, as such uh You know, we're required to be a nonprofit.
0: You also, or there is also a USBA foundation. Now, how is that related specifically to, uh, you know, the organization you run?
1: Yep. So, um, the U.S. Biathlon Foundation is a separate 501c3 that was founded in 2010, um, and really has the purpose to, uh, help provide the funding necessary, uh, to support the, the team and, um, U.S. Biathlon in general. You know, the straight up question would be, you know, how does your
0: organization or where does it receive most of its funding from?
1: Yeah, so, you know, more or less half of our funding comes from the United States Olympic Committee, and we raise the other half of the funding through um, sponsorships and other programs um, that we have. And this is always a murky
0: question when talking to people in the U.S. about funding, but are you at Liberty to give a number for the rough budget for the high performance team? Um,
1: yeah, sure. I mean, our, our, our overall budget is somewhere in the order of, you know, it varies a little bit from year to year and, you know, it's all online. You can, you can find our nine ninety and our financial statements online, but, um, you know, in general, we're around a $2.6 million organization. Um, you know, the breakout for, um, the national team part of that, it roughly ends up being about $2 million. Okay. And, you know, that's a, it's a little bit of a fuzzy number because it includes things like the fair market value of the uniforming that we get from our great sponsor, Adidas, right? So, you know, that ends up being you know, a really big number. <laughs> but, um, so, you know, it's, it's not all cash, but. Um. Okay. So that w-
0: essentially what you're saying is that there, yeah, you're not, re- you're receiving it in kind, like in uniforms or equipment and gear. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are coming off, obviously a, a very successful world championships. And I'm curious, you know, you've been with the organization a long time, You know, would you consider it to be at this point like a high functioning, highly successful organization where achieving medals, a gold and a silver, I believe, at world championships is a byproduct of, or is a reflection of how the organization is run? Or, you know, is it still like we have awesome athletes, a great staff, and there has to be a tremendous amount of luck at play uh, to get success like that.
1: Yeah, you know, I guess it's it's somewhere in the middle, right? I mean, uh, there's no question that we have an awesome staff and we have great athletes. And, um, you know, I, I think we are a really um, entrepreneurial organization that made um, strategic decisions to have a very intense focus on our national team program and that was a, a deliberate decision and of course resulted in um you know some other areas that are important to the sport not being uh fully funded or fully exercised so i you know i, I think we are really a um slow motion startup <laughs> Kind of organization where uh, you know where we have to be very entrepreneurial because we are vastly, vastly outspent by our competition in Europe, um, with the sport being so popular there uh, and just the the general way um, government supports sport at all the countries um, we compete with. You know we're always the financial underdog uh, there, so. So I think the, you know, really tremendous leadership of our team by our chief of sport for the last 10 years, Baron Eisenbichler, and, um, you know, just great, great collaboration between the coaching staff and the athletes and all the support staff for the team has made the success we saw last year possible. Can you
0: talk a little bit about what some of those strategic decisions were um, that you guys set in motion and how they've manifested.
1: Sure, I mean the you know the the obvious ones. Um, you know, our our decision to <clears throat> fully support um, the national team athletes, such that they can um, make a long-term commitment to the sport. And so that means having a good direct athlete support program where, um, you know, they get monthly stipends through our agreement with the United States Olympic Committee. They compete for up to $15,000 in bonus money um, from, for the world cup. And, you know, if they're, finishing in the top 10 or maybe it's now top 12 at the world cup they also get obviously IBU prize money um too so you know I think having a a athlete support program um that really allows the athletes to stay in the sport long term with you know at, at least a minimum sense of security you know it's it's nobody's uh, nobody's going to retire on what they earned as a biathlete um, during their career but uh, he it the nature of the sport with obviously the endurance component that we're all familiar with from cross-country skiing and you know sort of coming to your mature best races in your late 20s and early 30s and the the Requirement in the sport to be both fast and effective on the shooting range, and and the experience required to manage the mental side of that, just to, to be able to be on the range and stay in your stay in your game um, when a medal is literally on the line for the last shot you need to take, you know, that, that takes a tremendous amount of experience. So, so all those things mean that our athletes are going to mature later. And that means that there needs to be a good support mechanism in place to, to help them get there. So that was a key priority for us as we, um, you know, really put our plan in place 10 years ago. Um, some of the things that we've done, um, you know, were to minimize overhead in the office um so you know we have a really really lean um national office staff and uh you know while i think that is um what is the right thing for the organization and definitely the right thing for our possibilities for success it does mean that our our office function is not um you know not World class. Uh, and, you know, that's, I guess that's why I sort of think of us as this sort of uh, slow moving startup where, um, you know, we're <coughs> we are making tactical decisions to underfund certain aspects of the organization in order to fund the critical part, which is um, giving the athletes the support they need to succeed on the international stage.
0: Hey folks, a quick break here to read a note from our sponsor. This episode of Nordic Nation is brought to you by the 2018 Masters World Cup in Minneapolis, Minnesota. If you are concerned about the prospect of low snow, here's Masters World Cup Chief of Competition Nels Dysty to alleviate any low snow fears.
1: We've had a lot of large races here at Worth Park, and so we're kind of prepared for everything. We've had huge snow years where we've been able to ski into May and lower snow years. Right now, we have snowmaking capabilities on a little over three and a half kilometers. And over the summer, we've been making some big investments. We have a water cooling power, increased snowmaking, and grooming equipment. And uh, we expect to be able to, to groom out a, a little over seven and a half kilometers here this winter.
0: Registration for the Masters World Cup in Minneapolis, Minnesota is open. You can go to mwc2018.com for all the details. Okay, back to the Max Cobb interview. So, you know, there was an article today that Faster Skier posted, and I think Chelsea Little wrote it, talking about team selection criteria for alpine skiing and how they have U.S. Ski and Snowboard has strict parameters on age and correlating, you know, where a specific athlete must be when they're a certain age. So for example, I'm just paraphrasing here, you know, if they're 25 and they're mid-20s, they have to be higher up in the overall rankings than say they would be in, say, if they were 22. To contrast that, it seems like U.S. Biathlon has invested in athletes that are more mature. And I say that respectfully because some of those athletes just medaled at world championships, you know, Lowell being Lowell Bailey, being one example. Can you talk a little bit about um, what those discussions are like behind the scenes in that you invest and stick with, and don't necessarily prohibit an athlete from having opportunities Despite them being
1: in, this say, late twenties or mid thirties. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, Lowell, Lowell's been in this sport for for two decades. So, um, you know, and I, I can remember him as a a little, you know, BKL age, age skier in Lake Placid when we had trials skiing around behind the national team. And um, so, you know, it, he he exemplifies you know, one pathway that that we have where he was a part of our junior national team program and raced in Europe extensively as a junior, then went back to college and had a successful ski career at the University of Vermont, where he was on the podium at the NCAAs twice, um, and then came back to the sport and, you know, continued to show great great progress but you know as i mean i think we accept that with the structure we have in the united states and the mm-hmm. amount of time it takes to become a proficient biathlete, athlete um, that our athletes are going to be at their best later now you know obviously in in contrast you know we have sean doherty who is the most decorated youth junior athlete in the world from any country, um, having won 10 medals at the Youth and Junior World Championships. Um, so obviously Lowell is one example of how the sport works. And you know, I, I think that what we're seeing in the sport is, and it's not just our athletes, but across the whole sport, is that as the training methodologies get better, as the recovery systems that we have in place get better, athletes are able to remain competitive longer and longer into their, you know, late thirties. And, um, you know, we've had, uh, Oleana Bjorn uh, won a gold medal at age 40 at the Sochi Olympic games and, you know, won another medal at the world championships last year. So, you know, it's certainly not just an American phenomena that we're seeing that, but it's also because, um, the physiology and experience—the combination of um, physiology for endurance sports and experience needed to succeed in biathlon—really um, favor older athletes. Uh, so, so I, you know, I think it's it's a uh, it's just the way our our sport works, and um, you know, I, I think we really take an age-independent view of um, our athletes, and what what we look for is you know, the will to continue to, to push themselves and redefine what they can do every day. And, um, you know, having the drive and the focus to stay in the sport. I honestly think that the, the bigger constraining factor with regard to age is, is more social that, um, it can be really hard for athletes to, uh, postpone settling down and starting a family and, and you know having the, the stability in their life that a lot of their peers have. Um, and I, I think we, we've seen that as a bigger factor driving athletes um, to you know choose to retire than, uh than their bodies breaking down or they're not being able to continue to perf- perform at a high level.
0: You know having been with the organization for so long and the sport for so long, I you know longitudinally, can you describe how, you know, the biathlete development model has changed for you folks, um, over the years. And, you know, with, with the context, as most of us probably understand it now that there's a lot of recruitment from the elite cross country skier ranks.
1: Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I think we, um, we absolutely believe that, you know, top biathletes will come from Kids who who grew up cross country skiing, and so there will always be that um, that connection uh, with with cross country. And um, so far, you know, that's that's been borne out. We really see, you know, three distinct pathways or or entry points into the sport. You know, the first is to begin as a young 12, 13-year-old the way Sean Doherty did and continue to have, you know, coaching and program opportunities that match the progression um, that the athlete makes. And, you know, I think I'm really proud of the way the staff managed um, Sean's development and his progression. And, um, you know, it was a shame that he got mono last year, but he's hardly the only... uh, (coughs) elite endurance athlete to to get mono and I think we um, you know we saw some really encouraging performances out of him at the end of the year and I think he's he's in good good place for next year too so uh, I think that that's one model Susan Dunkley exemplifies another model which uh, you know she was recruited through a program uh, that we had at the time to get top college skiers um, shortly after they've you know, completed their collegiate skiing career. And, uh, so Susan had, had never shot a biathlon rifle until the summer after she graduated. And, um, but within, you know, a couple of seasons, she had already had a fifth place at the world championships. And, you know, I think that she was, and uh, many people haven't seen this, but she was just a a split bullet away from a silver medal in Sochi. Um, She hit her first nine shots and the 10th shot split on the edge of the target. And if a little more of it had hit, um, she would have had a silver medal. So instead she ended up 14th. Uh, That's the nature of sport, but it does demonstrate how quickly she rose to the level of being very, very competitive after graduating from Dartmouth in 2009. So within five years she was right there. And the third the third way is what I talked about with Lowell, where, you know, an athlete gets great racing opportunities as a junior, takes some time off for college and then comes back to the sport.
0: Just overtly it seems like US ski and snowboard has a fairly well developed development model with, you know, umbrella organizations that are member organizations all across, you know, the the skiable country where there's accessible snow and a snow for at least say four or five months. I know here in the Northwest, Pacific Northwest, it it's tough to find groups that offer bath lawn, uh, to youth. Um, but I know it's also quite large in say places like new England, Alaska. So is it a conscious decision to, at this point, Forego that type of networking, or try trying to blanket the entire country where there is skiing, and focus on or rely on simply the development of really solid cross-country skiers that, in the future, might turn to the sport when they mature
1: yeah so th- th- that's and the, you're exactly right i mean those are the kind of tough strategic decisions that we had to make um so we we do support development coaches in new england and in the midwest and you know i think in the future um if our resources allow we will try to support um having coaches work in um, the rocky mountain region the the northwest and in Alaska, but um, for the time being, we are relying on a network of volunteers. And so, I think you know what we were able to do after Sochi um, was to reach out to. Some folks in each region who were well positioned to take a leadership role and really start communicating more robustly with them, start offering coaches' education programming, um, and really try to help um, nurture the growth of biathlon in those regions. So it's, you know, it, it's worked better in in some places than in others, but I think we are seeing, you know, some really substantive athlete development programs coming out of, uh, of that effort. And so we have this um, network of regional coordinators, one for each of our five regions um, who communicate very frequently and regularly with our chief of sport, Baron Dyson Bickler. And we organize national team and our development team coaching staff to go to each of those regions um, at least once a year and put on a athlete development clinic. So, you know, those are, but that's it. You know, those are the, the tough decisions that, um, you know, we have to make as we try and prioritize how, how to work together. And I think I've been really, proud of how many national team athletes and 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 other supporters really but how many national team or Olympic athletes have come back to the sport and taken on a leadership role in coaching and in creating programs in the places where they live you've got Glenn, Glenn job out in Truckee, California, who um, has nurtured a young athlete named Lexi Madigan to the point where she finished on the podium at the Leotopen Biathlon Festival, which is um, biathlon's largest festival in the world. It takes place in Norway every spring, and you know she raced other 15-year-old girls and finished third there after you know only a couple of years in the sport. We've got Zach Holland, Sarah Studebaker running the um, program at Soldier Hollow. Now uh, just just came on board there to reignite biathlon. We got Rob Rosser up in Casper, Wyoming, um, who's running a great uh, program there, and then um, Mark Shepard, who was on the running biathlon, so summer biathlon team for a number of years, uh, is you know a major mover and shaker for biathlon in West Yellowstone, and and now the new program that Lowell's involved with launching up in Bozeman. You know those are. Some great examples of how, you know, national team athletes are, or past national team athletes are really taking a leadership role in bringing the sport to young athletes across the country.
0: Okay, so we're going to shift gears a little bit. And I know that you are, can you describe, you're also involved with the International Bathlon Union or IBU. And and what do, you, what do you do for them? Or how do you represent the IBU?
1: Sure. I was um, elected to as the vice president for sport of the IBU a year ago, and it was a, a position open there and election held at our our Congress last year. Prior to that, I had been the chairman of the technical committee, um, which is the rules-making uh, body for IBU, and I, I was voted on as chairman in 2010, and I was a member of the technical committee back in starting in 2002. You know, if you follow
0: your social media feeds or read, you know, the New York Times and what have you, you are often um, quoted in articles having to do with anti-doping or doping in sport, and you seem to be fairly outspoken about it, which I think is appreciated, but. For someone who is involved with international organizations and a national organizations, from my perspective, it seems like refreshingly atypical. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, you know, what do you see? How do you see your role, and what is your role in terms of the anti-doping movement? And do you get it ever feel like you get pushback, you know, or just a vibe in the IBU system about being outspoken?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I, you know, I, I, my experience with doping goes back to, um, my first, first Olympic games that I went to as a, um, staff member back in 1992. And it's a long story I won't tell now, but it, it had to do with an athlete nearly dying from getting either the wrong blood or blood that hadn't been treated well. And, um, the up that went into that. And, you know, so early on in my career, I recognized that the the fight really wasn't with. I mean, one of the things I love about biathlon is that it's so humbling. You know, you can you can be on top of the podium one day, and the next day, literally, you can finish 60th, and that keeps all the athletes humble and respectful of the great performances that they have. And I realized pretty quickly that um, that the real enemy or the real fight wasn't on the track or on the range. It was for clean sport. And um, in the early 1990s, the sport, you know, like like a lot of sports, I think we weren't atypical, but um, there was, you know, real significant doping issues in the, in the sport that have, uh, you know, since the founding of WADA in 1999 have gotten progressively better. Um, but, you know, we now have a global agency WADA that is responsible for overseeing and and setting up programs to keep sport clean. And as they say in their bylaws, to, uh, to deliver an athlete's fundamental right to clean sport. And um, I think it's incredibly important for every leader involved in sport to um, take up that mantle and to push hard for clean sport and to be unequivocal in um, their support of clean sport and in enforcement of the rules for athletes who who dope. And it's been a challenging period in the anti-doping world um, since uh, the first documentary came out on German television on the ARD by Heo Seppel, pointing to real systemic doping and, and a total corruption of the anti-doping program in russia and i think you know it's it's just so important that sport leaders speak out for clean sport and send a message that 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 kind of behavior is is unacceptable and will meet with the harshest possible penalties
0: do you feel like a lone voice
1: sometimes when it comes to leadership at least when it, you know, publicly? You know, I never feel alone because I know from talking with athletes how much support there is from the athlete side. And, um, you know, it's not the athlete's job to referee clean sport any more than it's their job to, you know, be officials at the competitions they compete in. That's our job as sport leaders. Um, so I, I, I don't feel alone in that regard. I, I You know, I <clears throat> some colleagues are are concerned about um, the political ramifications of speaking out for a clean sport. And, you know, everybody has to make their own decisions in that regard. And I don't, I don't judge anybody for, for the decisions they make in, in that space. Cause I know how powerful those political forces are. So I had the opportunity
0: maybe a week or two ago to watch Icarus. And, you know, it's a, if no one has, if people are listening and haven't seen it, it's a documentary that takes kind of an interesting twist that ends up focusing on uh, the Russian methods used for doping pre-Sochi and during Sochi um, and, and the subsequent cover-up. Yeah, I'm curious, have you seen that documentary? I have, yeah. You know, what were your thoughts? I, I've been following that news thread for, for some time as I'm sure a lot of people who read faster skier have followed it, but I, I watched it with two very informed adults and my 14 year old who was watching it for the second time. And the two people that I was watching it with, uh, are, you know, endurance athletes at a, you know, recreational level, but they were completely blindsided by like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe this has gone on. But Walking away from it, their response was, Wow, there is a total failure out there when it comes to the system and enforcing clean sport. So, if you can kind of reference the video and how, you know, in, or the documentary, in many ways, it does popularize, it makes it accessible, you know, this story. Um, you know, what are your thoughts about the hurdles at this point? opposed to really presenting a clean field
1: yeah i'm um, look i uh I, I think you you speak about it the right way and um uh, obviously you know being uh being involved as i am in this in the sport i followed this story very very closely um since that first documentary came out on german television in december 2014 um so i was aware of most of the content of the video and yet still seeing it you know hearing rod who i've never met but hearing you know hearing his voice hearing him talk about what they did and how they did it and um and you know i think brian brought that brought that story to life in a really great way, Brian being the guy who made the film. I think you know it's a complicated question that you're that you're asking. And the reality is that you know we have now a global framework um, for anti-doping, And that is huge, huge step forward from where we were in the 1990s and even in the early 2000s. So there's absolutely no question in my mind that sport is cleaner and that because sport is cleaner, it has helped um, endurance athletes from the United States perform better, um, so particularly or, or succeed more in international competition, not perform better, but succeed more in international competitions. You know, my takeaway in broad brush strokes is that leadership matters. That you know the failures that we see in sport in the period when WADA was active and and doing its job came because leaders in the sport didn't lead effectively in anti-doping. They didn't fight um, for clean sport. And I think you know one of the things I, I have so so much respect for. Becky Scott's leadership as the chair of the WADA Athletes Committee. And um, she talks about how important trust is in anti-doping. And others who have, you know, investigated doping extensively and asked athletes under oath, you know, why did you do it? The thing that they always say, the common element in that question is, I didn't think the rules were being applied equally to everyone. And I thought by doping, I was just leveling the playing field. And I, you know, I think for, you know, that really speaks to what Becky talks about, about how important it is for athletes to trust the system, to believe that everyone is being treated the same under the the doping rules. And, and where we don't, you know, where the system has failed, whether you look at at cycling, or you look at the more recent case in Russia. It is that leaders in the anti-doping movement didn't want to enforce the rules, and I, you know that's that's obviously what happened in Russia to a to a shocking <laughs> um, degree, and and you know beyond what happened in Russia. But you know I, I think that everyone who is a, a leader in the anti-doping space needs to embrace enforcement and consequences for um, rule violations. And when when that fails, even just a little bit, athletes sense it and their sense of what's fair and what's right changes because they understand that the rules aren't being enforced. And then, you know, then doping becomes much more widespread. And I think that's, you know, that's really... What's at stake here now for the whole Olympic movement is how are the leaders from WADA and in, across all the Olympic sports going to react to what we found out happened in Russia. And um, I think that'll have a profound effect and send, send a message across, across the sports, across the world, about the movement's seriousness of purpose in anti-doping. I have a a couple of follow-up questions, but one
0: is, is it your sense that there'll be more sanctions forthcoming for the Russians as it relates to the doping that went on in Sochi um, for this upcoming Olympic Games?
1: Um, You know, I, I guess I certainly hope so. I, I think that's, I think that if there aren't, it's a major failure of leadership. And sends all the wrong signals to athletes around the world, and um, so I think there there need to be consequences for the corruption that took place both at a institutional level and consequences at an individual level for the athletes who cheated at the Olympics in Sochi.
0: Piggybacking on this whole trust issue, in which you talked about, you know, this this uh, the idea that. I guess from your anecdotal evidence and talking to people who have doped, it's they felt like they were just evening the playing field, and so there has to be this athlete to athlete trust. What do you say to fans of the sport, in particular, you know, informed kids? There's lots of kids now that you know have either seen Icarus or have been following the story or are aware that you know presume. Let's presume you know North American athletes are racing clean. That on any given day, their you know heroes may be racing against athletes who are cheating. And, and again, most athletes I'm assuming are not. But what do you say to those kids that'll be watching the Olympics and the back of their mind think? Huh, I'm not sure if I'm seeing an authentic performance from a gold medalist or a silver medalist.
1: Yeah, that's um, you, you know, and I, I think that that's exactly the the great risk for the sport, uh, for sports in general, for the Olympic movement is when when fans don't believe in the integrity of of what they're seeing, and um, you know it, it can be a very personal experience when they're actually racing <laughs> there themselves or or one that they're watching, and um, you know that's. That's when that's why this is such an important discussion for sport to be having and why it's so important for the sport movement to get it right as we come through here because what we say and how we act and what consequences come out of this scandal um, crisis will determine the direction sport goes in in the future. And you know Becky, Becky said it really well to the WADA Foundation Board. She said, sport is at a crossroads now. And the athletes of the world are waiting and watching. And watching and waiting. I I think that everyone who is in a leadership position in a sport needs to reaffirm their commitment to clean sport and press for justice to be served in regard to um, the the Russian uh, doping scandal that emerged, and you know it's been pointed out that you know, Russia is not alone in in having doping programs. Um, that that may be true, and there certainly uh, is evidence from the retesting that the IOC did um, that there are other countries that have major doping problems as well. You know, I, I think it's incumbent on WADA to look carefully at the data there and say, okay, this is what the empirical data shows us. What's our strategy for improving the anti-doping situation in the places where we still see a significant problem? Anything that you'd want
0: to add here on any any topic? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, you, you know, I, I think what's, what's so... I, I would add a couple of things. I, I would say that... Um, you know it was so heartening and gratifying to see the overwhelming support that Lowell Bailey and Martin Forcade had with the athletes petition to the IBU calling for tougher sanctions and basically saying we will bear any burden to support clean and healthy sport and you know with uh, over 200 25 athletes and 25 um, coaches from around the world signing that petition, you know, World Cup athletes. um, You know, that was really near universal support from the athletes. And I think, you know, we can all be really proud of the anti doping work that is done in the United States and I would say in Canada too for sure. And probably in most European countries. And it has made sport cleaner. It has created a culture of clean sport within our countries uh, that is, you know, near universal and very, very effective. So, you know, to to young athletes out there, you need look no further than the world championships for cross country or biathlon last year to know that clean athletes can win medals um, regardless of what our competition is doing at this point.
0: Okay. Hey, uh, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I've, I've been meaning to yeah. send you an email to get you on this thing for a while. So appreciate it.
1: I enjoyed it, Jason. Thanks a lot.
0: Thanks for listening to the Max Cobb interview.